Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm John Rogan. This morning, we're talking about this week's elections. Republicans stormed to victory in many of the big national races. They picked up about 60 seats in the House of Representatives, more than enough to take back the majority from the Democrats who've only controlled the chamber for four years. The GOP also made some gains in the Senate, and around the country, they took over state houses and won gubernatorial races in big numbers. Fordham University political science professor Tom DeLuca will be here to give his analysis of those major national races in a few minutes. But we begin with a recap of some of the top local races. First, the New York governor's race, where Andrew Cuomo easily defeated Republican Carl Palladino. He received more than 60 percent of the vote to Palladino's 34 percent. In his victory speech, the governor-elect called for unity among New Yorkers. Yes, we are upstate and downstate. But we are one state because we are New York. Yes, we are black and we are white and we are brown. But we are one state because we are New York. Yes, we are rich and we are poor. But we are one state because we are New York. Yes, we are gay and we are straight. But we are one state because we are New York. In his concession speech, Palladino wished Cuomo the best, but the speech was also marked by some of the outsized rhetoric that caused him trouble on the campaign trail. He cited his previous pledge to bring a bat to Albany to clean up the Capitol. Although he won't get the chance for the time being to do that, he did bring a baseball bat to his election night party in Buffalo. Palladino held the bat during his speech and then delivered a message to his former opponent. I've always said my baseball bat is a metaphor for the people who want to take their government back. But this isn't my bad, after all. As our next governor, you can grab this handle and bring the people with you to Albany. Or you can leave it untouched and run the risk of having it wielded against you. Because make no mistake, you have not heard the last of Carl Palladino. Palladino has been mentioned as a possible candidate for mayor of Buffalo in 2014. The New York Senate races also saw Democratic victories. Senior Senator Chuck Schumer cruised to re-election to a third term, and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand won her first election after being appointed to fill Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's old seat. During her victory speech, Senator Gillibrand said there's a lot of work for her to do in the nation's capital. I haven't been in Washington very long, but I can tell you it's broken. And the challenges we face have never, ever been greater. We need a new vision for New York, a greater promise for solutions and help for the middle class. And that vision starts with helping the middle class through tax cuts for middle class families. Senator Gillibrand also called for politics and ideology to be set aside by leaders in Congress. In the Connecticut Senate race, Republican Linda McMahon fell to longtime State Attorney General Richard Blumenthal. McMahon, a former wrestling executive, spent nearly $50 million of her own money on the race. On election night, after the race had been called, she said she thought the money was well spent. I was making an investment that I hoped would be for the people of Connecticut, and I believe I delivered that. And here's why, because as I said in my remarks earlier, I absolutely do believe that we have Washington listening more, and hopefully we have our state legislature listening more. Richard Blumenthal, who's served as the Connecticut Attorney General since 1991, is succeeding retiring Senator Chris Dodd. The race for Connecticut governor was too close to call on Tuesday. When a count of the vote in Bridgeport was added to the totals on Friday morning, Democrat Dan Malloy had the lead, but only by several thousand votes. Republican Tom Foley now says that he may challenge the vote count.
Back in New York, the races for controller and attorney general were closer than expected, with both races tightening up toward the end of the campaign. Democratic incumbent Thomas Dinopoli won the controller's race by just about 2 percent of the vote. Dinopoli's been in the office since 2007, when he was selected by the state legislature to replace Alan Hevesy, who resigned amid scandal. Dinopoli was running against Republican Harry Wilson, who had the backing of New York Mayor Bloomberg. In the attorney general race, Democrat Eric Schneiderman topped Staten Island District Attorney Dan Donovan. Schneiderman becomes New York's top lawyer after serving in the state Senate for more than a decade. Voters in New York City decided to restore term limits to two terms. About three-quarters of voters supported a ballot initiative calling for the restoration of the old limits. Mayor Bloomberg pushed for the city council to increase the limit back in 2008 so he could run for a third term. But this year, the mayor said he supported the plan to restore the old law. He said he only supported the original change because the city needed his leadership to weather the financial crisis. Most of the members of New York's congressional delegation won re-election on Tuesday, including embattled Harlem Congressman Charles Rangel. The Democrat is facing ethics charges when he returns to Washington, but he still managed to defeat opponent Michael Faulkner with about 80 percent of the vote. Faulkner is a former New York Jet and a pastor. He said that he'd consider running again, but for now the 80-year-old Rangel will return to Congress for a 21st term. But New York wasn't completely untouched by the Republican surge. Some Democrats in traditionally Republican districts who had won election during the major Democratic influxes of 2006 and 2008 lost their seats on Tuesday. The district that covers Staten Island fell back into Republican hands. Michael McMahon had only won the seat in 2008. He lost to Republican Michael Grimm, a former FBI agent and Marine who was a first-time candidate. And in New York's 19th congressional district, which covers Putnam County and parts of Dutchess, Orange, Rockland, and Westchester counties, Republican Nan Hayworth topped Democrat John Hall. Hall won the seat in 2006. Hayworth is a doctor who benefited from one of the better-funded congressional races in the country. And in the 20th Congressional District, which is in eastern New York and was represented by Kirsten Gillibrand before her appointment to the Senate, Democrat Scott Murphy lost to Republican Christopher Gibson. Murphy didn't hold the seat for long. He had been elected in a special election in March of last year. Gibson won on Tuesday by about 10 points. The election returns control of the district to Republicans who had held the seat from the 1970s to 2006 when Gillibrand, a moderate Democrat, took the seat. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm John Rogan. And now for a look at the national political scene in the wake of Tuesday's big Republican wave. I'm joined by Fordham University political science professor Tom DeLuca. Professor DeLuca is the author or co-author of four books on American politics, and he's also the host of The Democracy Hour, which airs every Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. on TalkingAlternative.com. Professor DeLuca, thanks for being here this morning. It's my pleasure, John. This election obviously marked a dramatic shift toward the Republicans, especially in the House. Uh, they won more seats there than a lot of experts expected them to. But interestingly, the election's not necessarily being viewed as an endorsement of Republican policies. Uh, Marco Rubio, he's the Republican Tea Party candidate who won the Senate race down in Florida. He made that point on election night. Here's what he said. If we make a grave mistake if we believe that tonight these results are somehow an embrace of the Republican Party. What they are is a second chance, a second chance for Republicans to be what they said they were going to be not so long ago. So it seems like this election was more about frustration with the way Democrats have governed. Was this an unearned victory, so to say, for the Republicans? 
in a sense, it was an unearned victory in the sense that uh, many people felt that um, they were very frustrated uh, with uh, with the government, but really very frustrated with the fact that things didn't seem to change in spite of the change that was promised. And really, much of it comes back to the idea that the economy really hasn't improved dramatically since 2008. And I think that really, in the end, is what hurt the Democrats. And what mistakes do you think the Democrats made? Uh, do you think they should have spent more time talking about jobs and things like that? Well, yes, they should have spent more time talking about jobs and doing something about jobs. But I think they made a deeper mistake, which in, in retrospect was fatal. By not separating themselves clearly from the uh, President Bush's TARP program, the Targeted Asset Relief Program, that was the bailout of the financial institutions, President Obama seemed to put himself on the side of elites, just as President Bush had done. And so to many people, it seemed like what government was doing was it, what it always was doing, helping out those who were already well-positioned and well-heeled and forgetting about the little guy. And, of course, for a Democrat, that's not what they're supposed to do. So I think that really hurt uh, President Obama, and it particularly hurt him when he then tried to do a stimulus package to try to uh, jimmy up the economy and get more jobs because it made it very easy for his opponents to confuse in the public minds the stimulus package, which was designed to help the average person, and the TARP program, uh, which was designed to bail out the bank. People got very confused about whether there was any difference between them. And because the Democrats couldn't make the distinction and weren't able to and didn't didn't focus enough energy on making that distinction, they got labeled as just more of the same. And I think that was fatal. And we saw the results of that on Tuesday. Right. And the failure to make that distinction really led to an opening for the Tea Party movement, which is obviously this populist movement in the Republican Party. How big of a role do you think that movement played in uh, the Republican successes? Well, it played, I think, uh, an important role in setting the agenda of this campaign. They played a very important role in that way. But when you actually look at the races, I would say that the Tea Party uh, probably on the whole helped the Republicans in the House races, but actually may have cost the Republicans control of the Senate. There are at least three Senate races that we could point to that in which the Tea Party may, may well have uh, had a more sort of credible, more mainstream Republican, a tra more attractive Republican been nominated. It, they could very well have won those seats. And, of course, I'm thinking of um, the uh, Delaware, Nevada, and even Alaska which is a great irony when you think of that Sarah Palin's home state. But imagine this. The Tea Party's number one target in the Senate was Harry Reid. The Tea Party probably cost the Republicans, or at least made it likely that the Republicans would not be as successful as they would have been in Nevada. So Harry Reid will go back to the Senate as the majority leader, thanks to the Tea Party. So there was a lot of talk about anger and how energized the uh, the public was going into this election. Uh, how did you see that play out on Tuesday? Well, uh, I think it's very important to put this in a little perspective. This is uh, Tuesday was what we call a midterm election. That's an election in which all of the House of Representatives and one third of the Senate is up for election. It's not a presidential election. And in our presidential elections, our turnout is quite low by uh, comparison with other uh, countries. For example, in the last election of all eligible voters, it was a little bit over 60 percent. Um, and that's high for us, but but would be very low in Europe and actually very very low in the 19th century in the United States. In, in midterm elections, turnout is roughly 35 to 40 percent to a little bit more, 45 percent would be very high. In this election, it was about 42, 43 percent. So the point here, John, is that 
uh, that this election was decided by four out of ten Americans. In other words, out of, if you take ten Americans, six of them didn't vote in this midterm election. And that's not unusual, unfortunately, for midterm elections. In spite of the fact so people vote, so much hangs on these elections. So this is a real problem for our democracy, having such low turnout in such critically important elections. This was the first election since the Supreme Court's uh, Citizens United decision. That sanctioned unlimited spending on campaign advertising by corporations and unions. The Democrats made this a big issue on the campaign trail, including President Obama. They basically argued that this ruling did a big disservice to the country. What kind of effect do you think it had on the election? I think it had an effect at the margin. There was a lot of money that was able to be pumped in anonymously, so we couldn't really see the degree to which some of these Republican candidates were tied directly to the very elites that Tea Partiers are so resentful of. So I think it had that an important effect. But I want to I want to stress that I think that the Citizens United decision, and of course that's the Supreme Court decision, that basically said that uh, as long as uh, uh, organizations are running campaigns independent of the political parties, you can funnel as uh, much money into them and do so anonymously without the government requiring the, the kind of record keeping that has with average campaign contributions. That decision, I think, is really at the margin of the problem of money in politics. The mon- problem of money in politics stems to two things. One, Supreme Court ruling, which was ratified again in this uh, Citizens United decision, that money equals speech. That means the principle is not one person, one vote. The principle is one dollar, one vote. But the the ca- the kind of contributions that were allowed because of the Citizens United decision are really a fraction of the problem. This election may have spent as much as $4 billion. The the last presidential election, the over $5 billion was spent. Now, believe me, John, I doubt that you or I were high on the donor lists of the uh, candidates when they were running. When they were trying to see if they were viable candidates, what what is the first thing a candidate does? How many people can pony up twenty-three dollars or $2,400 as a contribution? That's the legal limit, which is allowed. Uh, and, and more importantly than that, it, it, let's suppose you can pony up to $2,400. As a candidate, what I want to really know is how many friends do you have? How many people do you have working under you who can also pony up $2,400 so I can bundle together tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of contributions and then I become a key player in determining who gets to run for president and what kind of policies that person will pursue. The problem of money in politics goes very deep. It's partly the Supreme Court's fault, in my opinion, going back to 1976 and the Buckley versus Vallejo decision. But there's a lack of political will in the, in the American Congress. Uh, in, here in New York State, we have even worse campaign finance laws than we have nationally. There's a lack of political will to get the job done. There are good organizations out there trying to develop fair elections where you would allow small contributions and then the government would match those small contributions as a way to build up a political war chest. The difference between fair elections and the kind of unfair elections we have is in fair elections, the amount of uh, money that you get would be proportionate to the number of people who support you. Right now, it's proportionate to the number of well-heeled people that support you. That's undemocratic. It's unfair. It should be changed. Continuing on this topic of money in, in politics, there were some actually some high-profile losses on Tuesday for some very wealthy self-funding candidates. In Connecticut, uh, wrestling executive Linda McMahon spent close to $50 million in the Senate race there. Uh, and in California, Meg Whitman, um, she was running for governor there. She uh, broke the, U- the, the uh, record 
for uh, self-funded candidate spending in U.S. history. Uh, she invested about $150 million in her race. They both vastly outspent their opponents, and they lost. Um, should this do anything to alleviate those concerns you were talking about, uh, about money in politics and maybe those particularly wealthy people having undue influence in politics? John, that's an excellent question, and the answer is no. And the answer is no because uh, they may have lost, but they bought themselves into the game. They won their primaries. They got to run as credible candidates. They were taken seriously, not just by their state media, but by, by, by the national media. In other words, money does not guarantee that you'll win an election. Although Michael Bloomberg spent $270 million over three mayoral campaigns uh, and did win those elections. But what money does guarantee you is that you will be taken seriously, that you'll have a real shot at it. Now, whether you succeed or not, then somewhat depends on you. Those candidates proved to be weak candidates. But if they were weak candidates, how did they get their party's nominations? The answer is money. Well, and I, and I should point out that $150 million that Whitman spent, that was across the primary and the general election. So it, it clearly did give her advantage in the primary. But what would you say about those elections where you do, because you, you are seeing a lot more uh, wealthy candidates, uh, you know, trying to get elected office now. Did they have the biggest advantage when they're running against someone who's relatively unknown? Because in both these California and Connecticut races, they were running against candidates who the people of the states knew pretty well. Uh, are they at a you know, are they at a disadvantage in those races? Well, certainly if somebody is known and they're liked, as the case of uh, a Blumenthal in, uh, in Connecticut, it makes it harder for anybody to run against you. So if you don't have that kind of money, you're really going to be in trouble, right? That money puts you into the game. It doesn't guarantee you'll win. But the real question is, would Linda McMahon have been in the game at all if she didn't have that kind of money? And I think the answer is no. I'm John Rogan on 90.7 WFUV speaking with Fordham University political science professor Tom DeLuca about this week's elections. Coming up, we'll talk about what the next two years in Washington will look like now that the Republicans have gained more power. Stay with us. More Fordham Conversations is ahead. 26.2 miles. That's the distance some 40,000 participants will run tomorrow during the New York City Marathon. Hi, I'm George Boldarki. Runners will test their strength and willpower as they make their way through all five boroughs, starting on Staten Island and crossing the finish line at Central Park. Coming up on this morning's Cityscape, we'll talk to some of those runners. That's Cityscape this morning at 7.30, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Sunday on the big broadcast, the songs of Richard Whiting, who gave us Louise, Beyond the Blue Horizon, and Ain't We Got Fun. We'll have the hot cornet of Muggsy Spanier and the Kansas City Orchestra that launched the career of Count Basie. The big broadcast, Sunday night at 8 on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm John Rogan. This is Fordham Conversations. Fordham political science professor Tom DeLuca is my guest this morning. And now let's look ahead to the next two years. There are a lot of very conservative Republicans heading to Washington. Uh, people like South Carolina Senator Jim DeMint and uh, Texas uh, Congressman Ron Paul, they're not such ideological minorities anymore. Uh, these more conservative members of Congress will likely have significant influence now. What kind of impact do you think it's going to have? Well, I think uh, the Republican Party is going to have to make a decision. And by the way, when I say the Republican Party, we have to be a little bit careful because many Republicans realize that the Tea Party may have cost them the Senate 
And they're not happy about that. And they know that Sarah Palin played a role in that. So there's, there's a potential split in the Republican Party. Whether that will come to the fore remains to be seen. But the Republican Party, to the extent it can pull itself together and hold itself together, and I think at least for the immediate term they will in the House under the leadership of John Boehner, is going to have to decide, are they going to continue the strategy that they started in 2008 as soon as, soon as the returns were in, that they were going to oppose everything that the Democrats proposed, or are they going to try to work with the Democrats? And uh, now there's two, two considerations. One is, what do you do that's in the political self-interest of the Republican Party? And the second consideration is, what do you do that's in the interest of the American people? And they're going to have to make that very, very tough choice. We, we know what they did from 2008 until Tuesday. Now it remains to be seen what they'll do moving forward. Well, it does remain to be seen, but uh, Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, he's already said that uh, his top priority for the next two years is making President Obama a one-term president. Yes, certainly that's going to be at the very top of their list. But again, it's going to see how that plays out. That's exactly what Newt Gingrich tried on Bill Clinton back in 1994, once Clinton law and the Democrats lost control of Congress, both houses. Uh, and it led to the, gov the famous government shutdown when the Republicans refused to fund the budget uh, as it was. And that came back to haunt the Republicans, not Bill Clinton. If anything, that made Bill Clinton a two-term president. Let's move on to President Obama and what he needs to do to hold on to the White House. He spoke on Wednesday, the day after the election, and said that working with the Republicans over the next two years is going to be essential. Let's listen to some of what he said. What yesterday also told us is that no one party will be able to dictate where we go from here, that we must find common ground in order to set, uh, in, in order to make progress uh, on some uncommonly difficult challenges. We're going to need to be strong and we're going to need to be united. Now, none of the challenges we face lend themselves to simple solutions or bumper sticker slogans, nor are the answers found in any one particular philosophy or ideology. As I've said before, no person, no party has a monopoly on wisdom. And that's why I'm eager to hear good ideas wherever they come from, whoever proposes them. And that's why I believe it's important to have an honest, and civil debate about the choices that we face. So the president clearly believes compromising with the Republicans is important moving forward. Does he have the right idea, Professor? Well, I think it's important that uh, President Obama continue to show a willingness to work with the Republican Party. But at the same time, I think one of the fatal mistakes he made in the last two years, when it was crystal clear to everyone who uh, who was sort of alive and listening to the news or reading the newspapers, that the Republicans had said they were not going to cooperate. And then to endlessly deliberate and endlessly go over and over and hold meetings uh, and, and delay and, and demoralize his own core supporters, for example, over the health care plan, instead of moving ahead aggressively and vigorously, yes, compromise, yes, make agreements, of course, talk to the other side. But he has to both be willing to compromise, but to stick to his principles and his guns. Because when you do that, Ronald Reagan knew this, right? 
um, when you stick to your principles and your guns, people will respect you for that, even if you don't have the kind of short-term political successes that politicians too often seek. So my advice, if uh, President Obama is listening to your show today, John, my advice to him is, yes, of course, compromise. Yes, try to move to post-partisan politics. But when the cards are on the table, stick to your guns, stick to your principles, follow through, and then let us judge whether we like what you're trying to do. And now you mentioned uh, President Clinton and how he went on to win re-election after the Republicans took back Congress in 1994. Uh, do you think the fact that Republicans have been so successful in this election now have the majority in the House, could that actually help President Obama win re-election in 2012? Do you think he has a better chance of winning re-election now uh, than he would have had with uh, a Democratic Congress? Well, that, that's a hard question to answer, and I think actually um, uh, uh, the, the the answer to that question is going to be in the hands to some degree of the Republicans and uh, maybe to a slightly lesser degree the Democrats. If the Republicans are, are A, obstructionist, and B, appear to the American people as being obstructionist, in other words, if they can't finesse it so that as the, they were very good this last time saying no as a way to build political support, but that doesn't always build political support, as Newt Gingrich found out back in 94, 95, 96. So if, they, if they're not capable of doing that, then I think it will actually help President Obama. But, of course, had President Obama been much more successful, right, in other words, had, had he won this election, that would have meant that he might have done some of the things I mentioned before, really clearly taken on the banks, not just bailed them out, but made them pay for the mistakes that they made, not make us pay for them. I think he would have won this election, and he would have been in great shape going towards uh, 2012. So really, the answer to your question is, had Obama done better, they would have kept the Congress, and he'd be in a better position. If the Republicans do badly now, uh, just be the party of no and appear to be the party of no, then that will help Obama too. And looking towards that 2012 race um, on the Republican side, there's been a lot of talk about Sarah Palin as a serious uh, contender for the Republican nomination. Uh, she had some successful endorsements in this election cycle, uh, choosing some candidates out of relative obscurity who went on to win, particularly in South Carolina, where uh, she endorsed the soon-to-be governor, the governor-elect there, Nikki Haley. Uh, there was also a New York Magazine article recently where uh, John Heilman laid out the case for why it's very possible that she could win the nomination and then the presidency. What do you think about her chances? Well, I think she's got a lot of support. There's no question about that in the uh, in the Republican Party, and um, uh, arguably uh, to some degree in the nation. Although his unf her unfavorable ratings uh, are higher than her favorable ratings, so she's got a long way to go to actually become elected president. I would say if there's a bad, if the ec economy stays bad, and uh, especially if it gets worse, somebody like Sarah Palin becomes a real force in the next election. If things stay more or less the way they are, or, or especially if they get a little bit better, I think if she runs for president, then the Republican Party is going to have a battle royal among themselves. And really, depending on how that plays out, will determine whether like some, someone like Sarah Palin can emerge as a, as a viable candidate. I, I, you know, you, if you read some history, or I can, uh, I can remember back to 1964, uh, Lyndon Johnson was very happy that Barry Goldwater Barry Goldwater, who wrote the book Conscience of a Conservative, uh, he was very happy that Goldwater got the nomination because, in his opinion, that gave him a much easier path to re-election. Uh, some Democrats might still feel that way about Sarah Palin. That is, if somebody who is a little bit more extreme on the Republican Party wins the nomination, that will make it easier for President Obama. But I wouldn't. But I uh, have, don't come to that conclusion yet. I think she's 
I don't uh, I don't know if she's qualified to be president, but I do think she's a very shrewd political operator. And I do think she wants to be president if she runs and if she gets the nomination, if um, turmoil continues in this country so that her kind of populist candidacy uh, it can catch on. And if Obama still uh, is to, a little bit too much to professor and not enough to populist leader, I think Sarah Palin could be a danger in 2012. And now moving out of Washington politics for just a second, it seems like one of the more overlooked aspects of this election uh, were the successes that Republicans had uh, winning, you know, governor's mansions uh, across the country and also winning state houses. Now, this is particularly significant because this year uh, redistricting is being done based on the 2010 census. How important do you think that is? I think it's important because, you know, uh, by law, uh, every time there's a census, there needs to be um, uh, an accounting done of which states deserve how many representatives, right? So if pop, you have population shifts, if, say, let's suppose, uh, New Jersey loses some population, I don't know that they did, they might be entitled to less representatives than they were in the last election. So by law, this must happen, and it happens right after the census. That's why this gubernatorial election and these state house elections are so important, because it's the state legislatures that draw the new lines that must be drawn to determine uh, who, uh, you know, which voters are in which person's district. And that's enormously important in terms of drawing lines that are sympathetic to your party, what's called gerrymandering, political gerrymandering. You draw lines uh, in your state so that you can maximize the number of seats your party can win and, um, and um, uh, maximize the number of seats the other party will win. And it's incredibly important, and that itself is an important defeat for the Democrats. All right, Professor Tom DeLuca, Fordham University political science professor, thanks a lot for being here this morning. My pleasure, John. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up with past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm John Rogan. Follow American Roots this week to the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, as we hang out with some of Philly's finest ambassadors of music and culture including Bobby Rydell, Questlove of the Roots, and remembering soul man Solomon Burke. Plus, music to get you dancing the strand and twisting the night away. I'm Nick Spitzer. Join me for American Roots from American Public Media. Sunday at 6, followed by Rich Conady and the big broadcast on WFUV.